Sam, welcome to Waterstones. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting to talk to you about The Clockwork Conspiracy. I'm going to ask a question first, which relates, I suppose, to some of your previous books. You've written about trains. Yep. You're now writing about clockwork. Yeah. Does this mean that you are 100% a nerd? <laughs> um, absolutely. Uh, a classic nerd, a proud nerd, let's say. When did you first discover your nerdish tendencies? <laughs> well, look, what is a nerd? I would say a nerd is someone who's really excited to learn about stuff and, more importantly, loves sharing those weird facts with other people. And that is, uh, that's definitely me. I've always been a nerd. I've loved um, obscure facts and just, like, cool stuff about the real world ever since I was a, a kid. Um, but it was only when I sort of started writing children's books when I was when I turned 30 that I um, sort of realised that that obsession with weird arcana that I had was a, with a kid was was kind of my way of getting in touch with what made an amazing story mm. um, and what made uh, what was exciting for a, for a reader as well. Um, and that's kind of what I find drives me as a writer is that I really, really want to find something about the world that I'm really interested in, work out why that's interesting to me and build a story around it. And hopefully, as a reader, you get to read that and discover why it's awesome and interesting as well. So would you say that the, the sort of the starting point for this book was clockwork or, or was it time, I suppose? That... Great question. Um, I can pinpoint exactly the starting point of this book, which was um, when I went uh, with my dad on a tour of Big Ben, which I'd arranged for his birthday because he's an architect and he loves old buildings. And also um, the house I grew up in has a wonderful grandfather clock in it, um, which is very much the soundtrack to my childhood, striking the hour and everything. Um, and my dad wound it every week, so I thought it'd be a nice thing we go to Big Ben. Um, and you can, there's a wonderful tour that you can have of Big Ben. You go right up to the clock room, which is behind the dials, and this enormous piece of machinery is there, the size of a car. And me and my dad were stood next to each other in the tour group at the moment that it strikes uh, a quarter to six. And I know that because when you're in the room with a clock striking quarter to six, you really know about it. Um, and this room that had been very silent before then uh, f suddenly came to life. All these incredible cogs and gears and, and cables sort of started moving and clanking and weights dropped and fans spun. And we just looked at each other and went... <laughs> And we both shared this moment of childlike joy and excitement that this incredible man-made thing that was so enormous and so accurate um, that had been built to achieve this rather strange philosophical thing to accurately measure time, mm. this invisible thing that we don't think about every day, um, had just somehow sprung to life and had captured that magic for us. Um, I always say that I sort of I, I don't write fantasy books. I write books set in the real world because mm. I think that the real world is often more full of magic than anything that I could make up. And when I was in Big Ben, there was so much magic, like the time, the clockwork, the building itself was so full of stuff that I found fascinating. Yeah. And I knew at that moment when my dad and I made eyes and both felt like kids again that there was a story in that building worth telling. That's fantastic. We will come back to the building later because this sure. book is filled with fantastic locations which will be familiar to anybody who's visited London. Mm. We can actually see them out of the window of this I, building I'm right now. I'm so delighted that in this room, you can't see you watching this video, but we have a panoramic view of London out there and I can see Big Ben, the London Eye, um, the BT Tower, um, so much there. It's all there. Um, the book itself does begin with a father and son in yep. that very location and I wondered if you could tell us a bit about your protagonist, Isaac Turner. Can you tell us a bit about him as a, as a character? Sure, so Isaac Turner is uh, an aspiring inventor. He's 12 years old and uh, he loves science. He loves taking things apart and seeing how they work. 
Um, and that's really his, his superpower as he kind of becomes embroiled in a mystery because uh, his brain, the way his brain thinks is seeing the world a bit like machinery and seeing how the different pieces fit together. Uh, and his dad is a horologist, uh, the keeper of the great clock, which is a real job, uh, which means uh, the, the clock keeper in charge of Big Ben and all the other 2,000 clocks in the Palace of Westminster. And on the night the clocks go back, Isaac follows his dad up to the tower and his dad vanishes from the belfry, leaving behind nothing but a smashed pocket watch and a cryptic message. Uh, and Isaac has to uh, follow a series of clues all across London uh, to find him. And it's his sort of scientific brain uh, and his ability to understand how things piece together mm. that is sort of what enables him to find his father. And of course, uh, every protagonist needs a, a partner in crime yes. or a sidekick, if you like. Um, Hattie is such a fantastic character in, in this book. Can you tell us a little about her? Sure. So um, Hattie uh, is uh, the rebellious daughter of the Speaker of the House of Commons, uh, who's the only person who lives actually in the Palace of Westminster and who takes Isaac in when his dad disappears. Uh, and so Hattie is... Um, sort of very rebellious and doesn't really feel that rules apply to her. She loves climbing on the rooftops of Parliament at night just because she can and just because <laughs> she likes to explore. Just like Isaac loves to take things to pieces to see how they work, Hattie kind of likes to prod at social rules and structures to see how far she can bend and push them. Mm. And so while Isaac is very thoughtful and curious but a little shy, Hattie is very much the one leaping out of windows and dragging Isaac in her wake, thrilled to have a mystery and an adventure to solve. And together, they balance each other out really nicely and they were, I had to say, such a joy mm. to write as, as a double act. As you said, they sort of got different uh, motivations both of them, so it means that they, yeah. it really <laughs> propels the plot forward. You, you mentioned there how Hattie likes to climb across roofs. Yeah. And in the book, you have a situation where they are, because they're being cared for, they're sort of restricted in their movements mm. and it's Hattie's adventurousness that allows them to get out onto those roofs. Tell me a little bit about these locations, because you mentioned there that you went on an official tour of yes. Big Ben itself. But how, how did you find out more about the Palace of Westminster, the roofs, the access to them and all that kind of stuff? Tell me a bit about researching those locations. So late one night, I broke into Parliament. <laughs> no, I didn't. I did not. I did not break any laws while uh, researching this book. Uh, no, uh, I, there were, so I went on lots and lots of tours of incredible um, landmarks, many of which I had no idea that you could access. Mm. Um, there is a tour of Speaker's House that you can go on, the actual building where the Speaker of the House lives. Of course, the House of Lords, the House of Parliament and the tour guides there are fascinating and full of incredible information and um, uh, I learned so much from them um, and really when I was putting the plot together of the story I was thinking about what are the really interesting locations that have something to do with time that mm. I want to weave together into this story. So another really big location in the story is the Royal Observatory in Greenwich uh, uh, which is the home of the Prime Meridian that sort of slices right through the building which is really fascinating and is a museum to the history of time and timekeeping and navigation um, and I just loved exploring these places um, and there's lots of, uh, I, I, I research in every way I can when I'm writing a book. I love to go to the place, I love to read about the place, I love to watch YouTube videos about the place and, mm. and speak to people um, and just soak up as much as I can because you never know what's going to be interesting about somewhere until you really try and cram as much information about it into your brain as possible, mm. um, which is very much how I, I think is a different approach to other writers who will you know, start with their imagination and invent something, especially if it's set in a fantasy world. But mm. I, I like to root everything as much in the real world as I possibly can because, as I say, it's often more interesting than anything that I yeah, could yeah. make up myself. Yeah. Greenwich is, a, is, a, is an incredible place, as mm. you say, with that sort of... A lot of people will have visited and they'll have done that thing of putting one foot in the east and one oh, foot yeah. in the west. Always good fun to be in two places at once. Um, but it's so rooted to 
ideas from the past. If you see what I mean, yeah. we have this idea of people navigating around the world and sort of the idea of time zones and things like that. And in fact, this book has a lot of these things where the connections with clockwork and machinery are very much would be seen mm. as sort of old-fashioned things and a plot that's very much set in the modern day. We have to be very careful about not giving anything away too much yes. here. But this idea of technology against these more mechanical things. Mm. Tell me a little bit about that, because I find that really interesting, the sort of the, the conflict between those two things. So for all writers, and I would say especially children's writers, technology can be a real pain. Because mm. <laughs> technology often makes stories really boring. This is why people are always losing their phones or running out of signal in horror movies. It's, 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 it can be really annoying to find ways to make life full of jeopardy and interesting when you're writing technology. But also, it's less tangible. And the reason I loved well, fell in love with Big Ben as soon as I saw it, is because you can see the gears working, you can mm. see the machinery clanking. Um, and modern technology is often invisible to us and boring for that reason. Um, but time is invisible. And so when I was writing this story, I was really keen that I try and find lots of different ways to tackle the idea of time. So we start from this very um, conventional mechanical clock. Um, but the story goes all over the place and explores lots of other different ways of exploring time. There is... Um, uh, again, I don't want to give too much away, but we, but I, um, we talk about the atomic clock um, in this in this book, which is um, currently the most accurate uh, clock that we have. And I would say no less interesting, even though you probably do require a degree in advanced physics to understand how it actually works. Um, but I, I wanted to find a way to sort of weave these things together. And ultimately, why I love to do so much research is so that I can understand something at a level that allows me to boil it down into. Um, a distilled explanation that you can really get your head around with something physical. Mm. And so even though we're exploring some quite abstract ideas in this story about how time works and, and how technology interacts with time and, uh, and things like that, I always try and hook it to physical, tangible things, real locations, mm. and you see the real-world physical effects of how changes to technology manifest. Um, because technology is boring, but it's not the technology that itself that's interesting, it's often what it means to us. And that's why time is really interesting to us as well. It's not because we're moving through time, it's because like the sound of midnight mm. is really evocative. Um, the, the feeling of um, uh, being in a room when a clock comes to life. Um, these are the things that give the, the abstract things meaning, and these are the things that give your story meaning as well. It's the locations, it's the jeopardy, it's the, the feeling of what will happen when time runs out. It seems to me that in a book like this there are sort of two drivers to action and, and one for kids is that kids have a really strong uh, idea about what's right and what's wrong, yeah. sort of justice and injustice and so that can really spur them to be quite mm. brave in tackling mm. things. And the other thing I suppose for Isaac is this sort of personal thing with his dad disappearing at the beginning of the book, there's a real kind of emotional drive for him to, to solve this mystery and to find his father again. Which of those was the strongest for you in propelling things forward? I found it really important to weave them together. Um, and I think it's quite difficult to separate them because mm. although the thing that immediately sort of kicks Isaac off on this journey is that he's lost his father, he really wants to find him, he very quickly discovers that his father is embroiled in a conspiracy within government itself. And that was something I had real fun writing. Mm. Talk about abstract things that are difficult to express. This book is an awful lot about how Parliament works. <laughs> um, but I found that really fascinating because Big Ben is this mechanical machine that's incredible on a tower built above um, one of the most incredible parliament buildings in the world and the building is fascinating mm. and it's just as full of secrets as Hogwarts is, but it's real. Um, and I thought of the way parliament operated and passed laws and the people moved through its corridors as being a lot like a machine. And um, when we think about right and wrong 
and the driving force of, of what we think is right and why people are driven to do things, mm. I think a lot about Parliament and government and how laws are, are drafted. When I was first coming up with the story for this book, it was in the middle of the, the aftermath of Brexit and mm. Parliament was really straining at its edges. And every time I opened a newspaper, it would always be about how um, one law or another or one rule was being broken. Or And it was, it was a very stressful time to be alive and read the newspapers. Mm. But it made me so fascinated about how this is the machinery of our lives and this is how it functions. And everyone in here is trying to achieve something and they're straining against the machinery to try and do it. And really, I think it's inseparable, the idea of what you think is right on a personal level and what you think is right on a broader mm. sort of right for society level. Um, and so I had a lot of fun weaving those things together. Um, and again, without giving too much away, like the, the nature of time itself is very much tied into what Parliament is doing. And um, it's unpicking those two things that really draws Isaac and Hattie uh, to the climax of the story. I think we've actually done very well not to give away the sort of important I've point. never spoken about this book properly before, <laughs> and I have to say, I keep thinking I'm going to put my foot in it, so thank you. <laughs> You've done very well. I was going to say that I don't want to give away the plot, but you, at the end of this book, tease it up absolutely beautifully for another story for mm. Isaac. Is there going to be more, and can you give a little hint as to where he might be taken? Is it going to be still focusing mm. on time or parliament, or <laughs> is it going to take him somewhere else entirely? Sure. Um, I very much wrote this book as a standalone adventure story. Um, I really like to write all books, even the ones that are part of a series, as a mm. standalone book so that a, a child can pick it up from a bookshelf and read it in any order they like. Um, but this book, when I was thinking about how to sum it up, I very much think of it as the Da Vinci Code for kids. It's, right. it's about you know, following clues and exploring a city and, and history and modernity and, and action and adventure. Uh, and the Da Vinci Code, of course, is part of a series of books, each standalone adventures. And so what I want to do uh, in Isaac's future adventures, and yes, there will be more, Isaac and Hattie together will be exploring a different part of uh, science or a different sort of adventure um, flavoured with a different area of uh, scientific discovery. So the first book is all about time and clocks and clockwork. Mm. The second book will not be about that. It will be set in a different city and it will be focused on a different area of scientific discovery. And I don't want to say much more because I'm writing it right now and I would not <laughs> want to hold myself to uh, something that I can't follow through on. But I'm really excited to take them on another adventure and really, really broaden their scope. Um, when uh, I was writing Adventures on Trains with M.G. Leonard, we had the same sort of appetite with every book to take it to a different country and mm. have a different kind of train, a different kind of mystery, and really, really broaden the world. I love these characters so much, and I just want to, I just want to give them lots of different kinds of adventure. Well, I think once readers have had a chance to to pick up the Cockwell Conspiracy, they'll feel exactly the same way. They'll be very excited to see what comes next. But Sam, thank you so much for telling us about this one. Thank you so much for having me.